Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Today on the show we're going to have part one of our tragic horror live show. This is the first act of three coming at you over the next few weeks and luckily the first part is the most spooky part which ties in really nicely with Halloween. So sit back, relax and prepare yourself for tragic horror. Hello everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now what we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we get people to come on stage and uh, stand up and do some tragedy. Now uh, that means tragedy, what, whatever that tra- the word tragedy means to those people is what they're going to do. There's lots of different interpretations of that word and we welcome all kinds of tragedy here. Uh, so if you, if you don't think it's tragic, take it up with the axe or don't bother. Because uh, you can just enjoy the variety that you're going to see on the stage. Because uh, we're going to go to lots of different places and it's quite an exciting lineup. So I'm, I'm very excited to be introducing it. Now, um, so we are a live show, as you can see. We are also a podcast, so you can listen back uh, to what you hear tonight in coming weeks. Uh, and you can listen back to all the tragedy going back three years over on the podcast if you want to check that out. Uh, so yes, so we're recording tonight. Uh, so your reactions may be, may be used in, in audio form. I hope you're consenting. Uh, right, so um, yes, uh, the, the other thing to say about that uh, while we're talking about things like consent is uh, that, that tonight is about tragedy and that means it's going to be about sad things. It's going to have some laughs and, and some, some thoughts and all sorts of things, but sad things are going to be talked about on stage. So when you're walking down the street in your life, uh, a bad thing can happen to you at any time. Uh, you, you can't predict it. Well, we can predict it tonight. Uh, bad things are going to be talked about on this stage, and so you should be prepared for that. But um, that's a, that's just really a content note, but not really a don't don't go don't go anywhere. It's a nice safe, nice safe space where we talk about dark and depressing things. Uh, that's what I like to to try and find in my life. Now, um, this is kind of the sadmin section, I'm afraid, uh, but that's that's what it is. Um, so I'm going to go through a few little bits and bobs. Uh, at the end of the night, uh, we are going to have a sing-along. We're going to try to engender some catharsis with a sing-along. Uh, the song we're going to be singing tonight, I don't know how tragic it is. Uh, it's the Ghostbusters theme tune. Uh, so it goes with the more the horror side of things. Uh, but, but maybe not even that. But a fun thing to do at the end of some sad stories. Uh, and so, yes... Um, this is the last stand-up tragedy of 2014, uh, which is a tragedy in itself, yes, exactly. Um, but it's, it's great to have so many people to experience our last night of tragedy, and we're going to be back in 2015 with lots, of, lots more tragedies, so don't worry about that. But we're going to have a little break so I can sort out the tragedies in my own life and make my life actually work. And then the next year I'll be back here with a working life uh, and a working show. Yes. So, um, and what we're going to do next year is we're going to have a tragic winter, tragic spring, tragic summer and tragic autumn. So we're doing four shows in London next year and we're going to uh, also go back to Edinburgh to do a full run again if the Free Fringe will have us, which hopefully they will. Fingers crossed. So yes, um, right. Uh, another thing I'm going to say is we went to Edinburgh this year and we had some tragic snaps made for us. They are 
party poppers with little tragic stories inside. Um, they were made by, by uh, an author called Jay Adamthwaite, who's live tweeting tonight uh, the show as well. So she's in the room uh, if you want to talk to her about her stories or be polite about them when you read them. Uh, so yes, um, but we've got loads of these left, so I'm going to throw some out into the audience. As a kind of, they're party poppers, and I guess tonight's the last night, so it's kind of a party night for us. Um, so let's see. It's like, let's now throw, of, right, everyone wants them. Whoa! This does feel quite Halloween-y, doesn't it? Right, whoa! Okay. Let's see, right. Okay, who's not got any? Who's not got any? Oh, front row. Right. Wow, people are rushing for them. There we go. There's only one, that's the only one. Wow. So enjoy popping them, but remember to look for the stories uh, as well, um, which will be fun here and there. Wow. It's very exciting. Uh, so yes, so that's something to say about... Also, we've got some tragic merch on offer tonight if people want to buy it. Um, we've got some t-shirts left over from Edinburgh if you want to have a t-shirt. Uh, we've got some, some of my album uh, as well. And we've got um, these, which are Tragic Scent. Now, we had these made by a guy called Joe Barrett. Uh, you can find out more about what he does at mutantinvisible.com. Uh, but we asked him to make the scent of tragedy. And uh, the audience voted on what the scent of tragedy was. And this was the winner. And uh, basically, uh, it smells like kind of freshly cleaned sheets, is the idea. Uh, which it doesn't sound very tragic, but the idea behind it is it's the, it's, the, it's the smell of a tragic breakup, you know? So you smell the freshly cleaned sheets, but it doesn't mean happiness anymore, it means sadness. And that's what that's all about. So, yeah, the kind of smell you smell when a lover leaves you, or even worse, when a lover dies. You can buy it for £5, uh, and uh, all the rest of our merch is £5. The other acts uh, may have some merch as well, and you should definitely check out the merch table. I know the, the, uh, the, the, the big band that you're going to see later on. Mechanisms. Right, there you go. I, 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 I've been having this problem with your name. I keep going to call you the Mechanists, but you're the Mechanisms. Ah, uh, yes, they've got some merch, so buy some of their merch too. Um, but you don't have to buy stuff. There's, there's free candy as well. Uh, so you can have some of that. Um, the other bit of saddening to do before I get to some sort of interesting stuff is that uh, we relaunched the blog this year when we went to Edinburgh. And uh, uh, that's the, the person who's editing the blog there. Uh, and she is looking for content. Uh, so if you'd like to, to publish your tragedy with us, uh, send, send your tragedy to her. Um, you, can, you, you can look online and find out how to do that. Um, but basically, uh, we're looking for short bits of tragedy, whatever that means to you. We haven't got any money to pay you, but we don't mind stuff that's been published elsewhere. Uh, and we're happy to take it down. If you do get published somewhere, they can pay you. Because uh, we're, you know, we're aware of, you know, we're all also trying to get paid as well. <laughs> and that's the tragedy of making art. But never mind that. Let's actually have some art. So tonight... Uh, is all about tragic horror. That's the theme. So you're not just going to see some tragedy, you're going to see some horror. So yes, that's nice. Um, it seems to me that uh, tragedy, uh, like what horror is all about, is tragedy. Uh, when you think about it, it's generally like the revenge of the tragedy. Like the tragic act happened ages ago and now it's coming back to destroy you. Uh, I mean, I, and I was thinking about that in terms of like my favourite, for example, my favourite... Uh, 
film, uh, I guess horror film, is uh, Candyman, and, uh, and that's very much about the horrors of the past coming back to exist with you. But it, all, it works for all of them, you know. Tragic heroes are what you have in horror. So vampires are very much, at least in these days, looked on as tragic, uh, tragic heroes. You know, that they've, they've had this terrible thing happen to them, but they were a high-born, you know, like very much like a tragic hero from a, a kind of traditional tragedy. Werewolves too, Frankenstein's monster, zombies. Basically, Halloween's all about tragedy, right? But it's about when tragedy bites back rather than cries at the end. Uh, so hopefully... And that's the kind of thing we're going to be having tonight. I, I sort of mentioned that I like Candyman, and the bit that scares me the most about Candyman is the, the scene where the, the, the heroine is kind of in a mental institution and tied down, and she knows the truth, but no one will believe her. You know, that's the kind of fear that really gets to me, the idea of you knowing what's happening, but nobody can, will believe you. Um, so I thought I would sort of start the night with a song, uh, a, a kind of around those, that kind of area of Nobody Believing You. Uh, it's from my album that I released recently. You can find on Bandcamp if you want to listen to it. You can download it for free or you can pay some money. I prefer the second, but both are good. Um, it's called Bouncy Poppy Songs About Death, that album, by my, my duo called The Reactionaries. Uh, this song, it's like... So, um, the song itself, it's about the boy who cried wolf. Does any, everybody know the story of the boy who cried wolf? Some people. Does anyone not know the story? A few people, right. I sort of realised that that would be the case. For me, I don't, can't imagine no one knowing it, because it seems to me that all my childhood people were talking to me about The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Uh, but The Boy Who Cried Wolf is basically... Uh, it kind of does what it says in the tin kind of story, in that uh, he, he keeps saying uh, that the wolf is coming to attack the sheep. Uh, and, whoa... What happened there? That's a tragedy. Uh, can we have some lights? What happened? Well, it's getting very spooky, which is kind of fits the, fits the night uh, in some ways. But I do like to be seen, you know, as well as heard. Uh, that's another sort of thing that reminds me of my childhood. Um, but yes, uh, there we go. So yes, um, so... That's what happens. The boy who cried wolf, he keeps saying that the wolf's coming when it's not coming, and then when he tells them that the wolf's coming, and it actually is coming, no one believes him. Now, I, this, this is my version of that. It's kind of about his point of view, to a certain extent. Like the first verse is from the point of view of the village, and the rest of it is the kind of narrator, if you want some point, point of view sort of stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very much about this idea of, of knowing something but no one believing you, and also kind of a child protection kind of approach to the boy who cried wolf. Um, you'll see what I mean in a way. Uh, right. Is that coming through enough? Can we hear that through the speakers? I can't. Uh, yeah? The audience thinks so, yeah? Yeah? Yeah, good. Right, okay. Well then, let's go for it. Right. The animals are coming. Yeah, they are coming fast. They are going to kill us. So we need to trust. Trust in you. Trust in you. We're trusting you to know what to do, what to do. Ooh, what to do. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
wanted to be seen. He wanted to be loved. He didn't understand how to reach out. So he lied to you. He lied to you. He wanted your attention. So he lied to you. Oh, help! He cried before he died. The boy who was eaten by wolves. Help! He cried before he died, and now he's gone. He's gone. Help! He cried before he died. The boy who was eaten by wolves. Help! He cried before he died, and now he's gone. He's gone. He is gone. He didn't learn his lesson. No. Never understood. He was just a child behaving like a child would, and he lied to you. He needed you. And can you really say that you never cry, wolf? Oh, help! He cried before he died. The boy who was eaten by wolves. Stage apart from sort of fucking up the chords is uh, is uh, pulling out the pulling out the lead at a bad time and upsetting the audience. So we've re we've all survived a tragedy there. I, I didn't do it this time. Right. So enough from me. Oh, me. I mean, I, I get sick of me. So I don't know what you guys feel like. All right. So um, our first act would have been James Hamilton from Casual Violence. I'm really sorry if anyone wanted to see him. I wanted to see him too, but he had to pull out the last minute today. Uh, he was even tweeting this morning, excited to come. Uh, and, and some tragedies have befallen him, and so he's not here. Uh, but you should check him out. Uh, when, you, uh, you know, when you hear his name, you should check him out, because he's really good. Um, so instead, our second act is going to be uh, an excellent guy who is a storyteller. Uh, you can find him at www.timralphs.com, so that gives away his name, but I'm going to give him a build-up anyway. Uh, he does a, 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 a storytelling night in Sheffield called the Story Forge, so he's come kind of from Sheffield, uh, not just to, do, to be here, though. He's also he's doing, he's part of, a, of the, uh, what's it called? Let's see. He's doing a, the Story Bazaar, there we go, a storytelling festival. He's and he's performing at that tomorrow at 7.30 at the Russet in Hackney. Uh, 
like 7.30 to 9.30 in a kind of thing called the Four Chambers with some other people. And he'll be telling some stories there. So if you like what you hear today, you can go and see him tomorrow. His name is Tim Ralph. So put your hands together for him now, please. Thank you, Dave. Um, well, it's quite, it was, earlier on I had that sort of lovely sort of horrific, tragic, greeny, blue, under sea kind of feel, and now it's this sort of warm kind of inside pumpkin pink. And it, and it doesn't feel very tragic to me, because this is one of my favourite nights of the year. This is the night where you get to sleep for an extra hour. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to let that ripple around a little bit. Let's, let's put aside that moment of joy. 750 years ago, or thereabouts, in Japan, there was a great massacre. And the Heike clan were all but obliterated by the Minamoto. Their samurai's ships were tossed into the water, burned, and a lot of people drowned. And then, as the Minamoto warriors got to the shores of where there is now a town called Bakan, the survivors of the Heike clan, the women... Uh, and the children went to the sides of the cliffs and just threw themselves into the water, their bodies bouncing off the rocks to get washed out on the tides to join their menfolk. And for a long time thereafter, the straits around Bakan were considered haunted and evil. If you looked at the crabs, those scuttling crustaceans would have the faces of the dead Heike samurai on their backs. And in amongst the waves and on the sand of the shore, you would see these glowing blue orbs, the onibai, the demon lights, the witch lights, that would slip out into the waters. And swimmers would talk of feeling strange hands grab them, try and pull them down. Even sailors would talk about how their ships, it felt like something was tipping and rocking them. And less than a century had passed before the monks built a great temple, an enormous shrine. And down on the beach, they built a sort of mausoleum, a memorial, not a cemetery, because there were no bodies to bury. But they erected monuments, listed the names of every Heike family they could find on them, and they performed ceremony after ceremony until the ghosts mostly fell quiet. Mostly. There was a time... When living in the shrine with the monks, there was a biwa player. The biwa is a, sort of a, a lute. You play it with a little flint plectrum. Uh, if you can't imagine a sort of four-stringed lute, just picture Dave hammering away. And that'll be <laughs> in that vibe. The biwa player was a man called Huichi, and Huichi was blind. That was why he lived in the monastery. And when the monks weren't out performing their duties in the town or attending to their prayers and their meditations, they would often sit and listen to him play, listen to him recite wondrous, epic poems. One hot summer's night, when all of the monks were out in the town visiting sick parishioners, Hoichi was sitting. It was too hot to be inside, so he sat on the veranda and he practised sightlessly. And through the night, he heard someone coming, the clanking of marching feet, someone wearing armour, and someone walked all the way through up to him on the veranda and barked out, Hoichi! And he thought, this must be some samurai, someone who is used to being obeyed. So he said, Hi, I am here with my august master who is travelling through these parts and has heard that you are a great reciter 
He wants you to come and entertain his court tonight. Well, Hoichi didn't want to turn down such an instruction like that. He started to get to his feet, and the samurai gripped him with fingers of steely strength and began to lead him, first at a walk, but then at a run, through the streets of the town of Pekan, leading him this way and that, until the poor blind Biwa player had no sense of where he was or where he was going. At last, he came to a great gate. He heard it creaking open, and inside... He heard the rustle of the silk that everyone was wearing. He heard the murmuring talk of the court. He thought, this room must be filled with people. And he knelt down. And he waited for the Lord that was there who commanded him to tell the story of the Heike clan. And he said, that story in full, it will take many nights to tell. Would you like me to just tell a part? And the Lord said, start at the start. And if you are good, you can come back here night after night, and at the end, you will be well rewarded. So, Hoichi began to play, and at his finger stroke where the strings of his biwa were, the straining rigging of the ships on the sea, the plectrum plucked those strings and it was swords meeting. He began to recite the epic histories, and when he came to the end, he foreshadowed the demise of the clan when he spoke of the last emperor, the infant emperor of the Heike, whose own mother had carried him up in her arms, walked into the side of the cliff and jumped off into the water. As he said those words, it was as if the court fell about in madness. There was such a sound of weeping, of sadness, and Hoichi was so convinced he must have offended someone that he thought about running away. But at last they fell quiet. And he heard a tremble in the Lord's voice as they said, We had heard of your reputation, Hoichi, but you are far finer than any words could say. Come back to us. Three more nights. And at the end of that, we will reward you with more money than you can spend in the rest of your life. That was great. A recurring gig with a good fee at the end of it. In the current climate, Hoichi was amazing. The samurai led him back by that meandering. It's nice to see who's laughing at that and who's like. The samurai led him back to the monastery. He got home before the rest of the monks came in. The next day he slept. And the next evening he slipped away again. But on that second night, his disappearance was noticed by the monks. And on the third night, they followed him. But he ran so quickly through the streets, the monks that were following him, they lost him. And they did not see him being led by some steel-fingered samurai. They just saw that blind musician, arms in front of him, running of his own accord, taking weird turns and twists. Through the hour of the rat, that long hour between midnight and two o'clock, the old Japanese calendar was only a 12-hour day, they searched for Hoichi, and at last they went to the cliff top that looked down onto that cemetery shrine, and they saw it blazing with light. Every onibi, every demon light, every witch orb seemed to have gathered there on the shore, and there was Hoichi kneeling in amongst the memorial stones, playing, singing the songs of the Heiki clan while all the ghosts of the dead were around him, listening. The monks did not have the courage to interrupt his playing. They waited until he was making his way home before they grabbed him, and when they touched him, he went into a sudden shock. They had to carry him home. 
The next day, they washed his face with water. He regained consciousness, and they asked him what he remembered. He spoke about the, the door, the arch that he passed through, the sound of the rustling silks, the, the sound of the murmur of the court. They said, Hoichi, it is ghosts that you have been playing to. The gate is the old iron gate of the cemetery. The rustling of their silk is just a play of the waves lapping on the shore and their murmuring is the cry of the gulls as they fly away from that accursed place. Hoji said, what shall I do? They're going to get me to play again for them tonight. They promised me more money than I'd be able to spend in the rest of my life. Hoji, more money than you'll be able to spend in the rest of your life because when you finish telling their history, they're going to tear you apart. Is there anything I can do? One thing, said the abbot. And he laid Hoichi down, he unwrapped his robes, and they began to write prayers. Tickling brush strokes in ink, they wrote of all of the many paths to Nirvana, all of the many ways of formless, until Hoichi's body was a map of the Dharma. Each and every part, they even shaved his head to write on the shape of his skull. And when they thought that his entire body was covered over with the holy words, they said, Hoichi, Tonight, go to the veranda, kneel there. They will come for you, and if you are silent, if you are still, they will surely not be able to find you. So Hoichi went, and he knelt with his biwa on his lap, as if he was meditating. And eventually, he heard that clanking march of that form coming for him. And he heard the voice cry out his name, Hoichi! Biwa player, where are you? Where are you? I see no musician, but I see a pair of ears. Because the monks had rushed. They had forgotten to write the words of the holy text on Huichi's ears. Well, my Lord commanded I bring back all of you. Perhaps this will appease him. And then Hoichi felt the clamp, the strong steel fingers on his ears. And the pain was bad. But the sound was somehow more horrible as his ears were pulled off. But he managed to stay kneeling, still and silent. And the next morning, the monks came. They tended to the wound, still oozing blood. And little by little, Hoichi recovered. And maybe that horrible night was the making of him. Because while he was still unable to travel all through Japan, when the story of Huichi the Iris spread, folks came and they listened to him. Thank you. Tim Ralphs, everybody! Okay, so yes, so now we're going to have, uh, well, we're going to have a, another story for you. So uh, the first act is kind of some, some creepy bedtime stories, really, and then we'll wake up with the second act. Uh, so our next, our next performer, he did this at Tragic, we did a, we did a, a night called Tragic Christmas, and... Uh, it was the, the most bleak show we've ever done. Uh, and this was one of the most bleak moments 
uh, that, that happened in it. And, and we thought, well, we have to have that for Tragic Horror. So you can find him at www.mackaypoetry.com. Uh, he's doing uh, a, a show in Luton on the Thursday, the 4th of, Dece of December, utter Lutonia. And uh, Saturday, the 13th of December, he's doing some poetry in Covent Garden, uh, at the Poetry Cafe. Uh, so yes, so those are things to look out for in December. A few months to go, but we were all right. Uh, so put your hands together, everybody, for James Mackay! So, so this is this is real. This is this is a real Victorian children's story from a real Victorian children's book called The Anyhow Stories by Lucy Clifford, a bestseller back in eighteen eighty five. If you read this to a child nowadays, the social would be on their way, as I think you're going to see. It's not the whole thing. I'm just going to top and tail it. I'm going to give you the setup, then we're going to cut to the chase at the end. This is absolutely real, and you can forget the fucking gruffalo. <laughs> now called The New Mother. That's important. <laughs> now, the mother and blue eyes and the turkey and the baby all lived in a lonely cottage on the edge of the forest. The tall fir trees were so close that their big black arms stretched over the little thatched roof, and when the moon shone upon them, their tangled shadows were all over the whitewashed walls. It was a long way to the village, and the mother had not time to go off and herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father, and so very often in the afternoon she used to send the two children. When they came back tired with the long walk, there would be the mother waiting and watching for them, and the tea would be ready, and the baby crowing with delight, and if any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were happy indeed. Dear children, the mother said one afternoon late in the autumn, it is very chilly for you to go to the village, but you must walk quickly, and who knows but what you may bring back a letter saying that the dear father is already on his way to England. Don't be long, the mother said. Go the nearest way, and don't look at any strangers you meet. No, mother, they answered. And then she kissed them and called them dear good children, and they joyfully started on their way. The postmistress was very busy weighing out half pounds of coffee, and when she had time to attend to the children, she only just said, no letter for you today, and went on with what she was doing. They had left the village and walked some of the way back, and then, just before they reached the bridge, they noticed, resting against a pile of stones by the wayside, a strange, dark figure. The girl seemed to be tall and was about 15 years old, she was dressed in very ragged clothes. Her hair was coal black and hung down, uncombed and unfastened, just anyhow. She sat watching the children approach, but did not move or stir until they were within a yard of her. Then she wiped her eyes, just as if she'd been crying bitterly, and looked up. The children stood still in front of her for a moment, staring at her and wondering what they ought to do. Are you crying? they asked shyly. To their surprise, she said in a most cheerful voice, Oh dear, no, quite the contrary. Are you? <laughs> then the turkey, who had an inquiring mind, put a good, straightforward question. What are you sitting on? she asked. On a pear drum, the girl answered, still speaking in a most cheerful voice at which the children wondered, for she looked very cold and uncomfortable. 
What is a pear drum? they asked. I am surprised at your not knowing, the girl answered. Most people in good society have one. And then she pulled it out and showed it to them. It was a curious instrument. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, but a little square box attached to one side. The box had a little flat lid that appeared to open by a spring. That was all the children could make out at first. And what have you got in there? they asked eagerly. In here, I have a little man dressed as a peasant and wearing a wide slouch hat with a large feather and a little woman to match dressed in a red petticoat and a white handkerchief pinned across her bosom. I put them on the lid of the box and when I play, they dance most beautifully. Oh, let us see, do let us see, the children cried both at once. And the village girl looked at them doubtfully. Let you see, she said slowly. Well, I am not sure that I can. Tell me, are you good? Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. We are very good. Then it's quite impossible, she answered. I only show them to naughty children. Good day. Oh, but we will be naughty, they said in despair. I'm afraid you couldn't, she answered, shaking her head. It requires a great deal of skill, <laughs> especially to be naughty well. Good day. Perhaps I shall see you in the village tomorrow. The turkey thought for a few minutes in silence. I think I can be naughty if I try, she said. I'll try tonight. And then poor Blue Eyes burst into tears. Oh, don't be naughty without me, she cried. It will be so unkind of you. You know I want to see the little man and woman just as much as you do. You are very, very unkind. And she sobbed bitterly. And so, quarrelling and crying, they reached their home. Now, when their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished and, fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. Oh, my children. Oh, my dear, dear children, she said. What is the matter? Oh, mother, sobbed Blue Eyes. Oh, dear mother, I do so want to be naughty. My dear child, the mother exclaimed. Yes, mother, sobbed the turkey even more bitterly. I do so want to be very, very naughty. I should be very angry if you were naughty. For then... I should know you did not love me, the mother said. And what should you do, asked Blue Eyes. I cannot tell. I should try to make you better. But if you couldn't, what if we were very, very, very naughty and wouldn't be good, what then? Then, said the mother sadly, and while she spoke her eyes filled with tears and a sob almost choked her. Then, she said, I should have to go away and leave you and to send home a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. <laughs> you couldn't, they cried. <laughs> yes, I could, she answered in a low voice, but it would make me very unhappy, and I will never do it unless you are very, very naughty, and I am obliged I think you know which way the score is going to go now. I think we're going to cut now to the terrifying final scene. You'll know. Suddenly, while they were sitting by the fire, they heard a sound as of something heavy being dragged along the ground outside, and then there was a loud and terrible knocking at the door. The children felt their hearts stand still. They knew it could not be their own mother, 
She would have turned the handle and tried to come in without any knocking at all. Oh, Turkey, whispered Blue Eyes, if it should be the new mother, what shall we do? We won't let her in, whispered the turkey, for she was afraid to speak aloud. And again, there came a loud and terrible knocking at the door. What shall we do? What shall we do? cried the children in despair. Oh, go away, they called out. Go away, we won't let you in. We will never be naughty anymore. Go away, go away. But again, there came a loud and terrible knocking. She'll break the door if she knocks so hard, cried Blue Eyes. Go and put your back to it whispered the turkey, and I'll peep out of the window and try and see if it really is the new mother. So in fear and trembling, Blue Eyes put her back against the door, and the turkey went to the window, and pressing her face against one side of the frame, peeped out. She could just see a black satin poke bonnet with a frill round the edge, and a long bony arm carrying a black leather bag. From beneath the bonnet there flashed a strange bright light and turkey's heart sank and her cheeks grew pale because she knew it was the flashing of two glass eyes she crept up to blue eyes it is it is it is she whispered her voice shaking with fear it is the new mother she's come and brought her luggage in a black leather bag that is hanging on her arm what shall we do wept blue eyes and again there was the terrible knocking Come and put your back against the door too, Turkey, cried Blue Eyes. I'm afraid it will break. So together they stood with their two little backs against the door. There was a long pause. They thought perhaps the new mother had made up her mind that there was no one at home to let her in and would go away. But presently the two children heard through the thin wooden door the new mother move a little and then say to herself, I must break open the door with my tail. <laughs> For one terrible moment all was still. But in it the children could almost hear her lift up her tail and then with a fearful blow the little painted door was cracked and splintered. With a shriek the children darted from the spot and fled through the cottage and out at the back door into the forest beyond. All night long they stayed in the darkness and the cold and all the next day, and the next, and all through the cold, dreary days, and the long, dark nights that followed. They are there still, my children. All through the long weeks and months have they been there with only green rushes for their pillows, and only the brown dead leaves to cover them, feeding on the wild strawberries in the summer, or on the nuts when they hang green, on the blackberries when they are no longer sour in the autumn, and in the winter on the little red berries that ripen in the snow. They wander about among the tall dark firs, or beneath the great tall trees beyond. Sometimes they stay to rest behind the little pool near the copse where the ferns grow thickest and they long and long with a longing that is greater than words can say to see their own dear mother again, just once again, to tell her that they'll be good forevermore, just once again. And still the new mother stays in the little cottage, but the windows are closed and the doors are shut and no one knows what the inside looks like. Now and then, when the darkness has fallen, the night is still, hand in hand, blue eyes and the turkey creep up near to the home in which they were once so happy, and with beating hearts they watch and listen. Sometimes a blinding flash comes through the window and they know it is the light from the new mother's glass eyes, or they hear a strange muffled noise and they know it is the sound of her wooden tail 
as she drags it along the floor. <laughs> night, night, children. James Mackay, everybody. Wow. So, I mean, that's a story very much in the boy who cried wolf vein, I feel like. like what, what are we doing? We're terrifying our children into submission. Our live shows are over for 2014, but they'll be back in 2015. We're going to be doing four live shows in London. We're going to be taking the show back up to Edinburgh for another Edinburgh festival with the Free Fringe, if they'll have us. And we may be doing some other stand-up tragedy events. But even though we're not doing live shows, we are still going to be putting out a weekly podcast. And those podcasts are going to be made up of the best of the stuff that we've had over the last three years. So listen out for the tragedy on SoundCloud, iTunes and the Stitcher Smart Radio app and anything else where podcasts go and gather together on the internet and hang out with each other. If you want to follow the tragedy, then follow us on Twitter at StandUp4Tragedy, the number four. And you can like the tragedy or even make friends with the tragedy on Facebook as well, where we're StandUp Tragedy. Through social media, we'll be telling you when the podcasts come out and keeping you up to date with the future of Stand Up Tragedy, when our 2015 events are going to be, so you can come on down. We're not just continuing the tragedy in audio form, we're also continuing it in written form. We'll be putting out regular installments of tragic fiction and non-fiction and poetry over on our blog, so you can Find that blog and everything else stand-up tragedy related at www.standuptragedy.co.uk And if you want to contribute some tragedy to us, if you'd like to write some tragedy and have it featured on our blog, get in touch. We're upstandingtragedy at gmail.com If you want to send us an email about anything, particularly if you want to submit some tragedy to us. Listen in next week for some more tragic horror. And for now, the tragedy, the tragedy is
This podcast was produced by me with sound recording from Stephen Harvey, music from George Bruffton and Samuel Williams.